When you came in, you should have gotten one of our Jude booklets held fast. Um, we use these for, of course, note-taking in the sermon that's allowed if you want to use it for your personal devotions, quiet times, but also for your community group um, discussions and, those, and gatherings and those sorts of things. And so if you didn't get one when you came in, make sure you grab one on the way out. Now, Jude is a short little book, so short, I, I imagine some of you are still trying to find it right now, like, right? Be honest. Right before the service, I tried to find it. It took me a couple of minutes, and I've been in it for a couple of weeks. It's the fifth shortest book in all the Bible, 461 words. However, this does not make it any less impactful. In fact, just the opposite. Its brevity places a sort of urgency around the things that Jude wants to tell us. And let me use a a social media analogy, if I could, for a second. Depending upon your age, and dare I say intelligence, depends on what sort of social media platforms you use, right? Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, flip phone, dial up, we know who you are. But only the brave, can we say this, only the brave are on Twitter. This Twitter gives you the opportunity to express yourself in 280 characters or less, not words, okay, characters. And if you follow these things at all, you know that, that for the media and the cultural elites and sports figures and political figures, it's actually Twitter that sort of sets the trend. It's, it's where companies and media and, and folks go to, to to sort of be galvanized and pointed in the right direction about what to think and feel and believe. If you don't believe this is true, um, about 15 months ago, Tennessee football went through, I think, once again, one of their coaching searches. And, and Vol Twitter by itself managed to dissuade the university from hiring a particular person and said they hired someone else. And this is a true story. Maybe it says something about the state of our souls that that could happen. But nonetheless, I think you get the picture. Well, in a lot of ways, Jude is the equivalent of the New Testament tweet. It is short, but oh, it is powerful. And it has to be, because there is no time to waste. There is an urgency behind what Jude is writing. And simply put, the church is in a game and a battle for its own survival. This is not a, a battle over the color of pews or what Sunday school curriculum we're using. This is a battle over the truth. And 2,000 years later, Brooks, you realize we are in the same battle? And part of what Jude wants to do for us is to reorient us and to remind us that we are God's people contending for the faith. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. We're just going to read four short verses this morning and then try to answer two questions. So here's the passage. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's Word. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts. You may take your seat. Two, two questions to sort of give us a running start into Jude for these next few weeks. And I phrase them like this. Who and, who and to whom? Why and for what? Who and to whom? Why and for what? In other words, who is writing this letter? To whom is he writing it? Why is he writing it? And what does Jude want to impress upon not just the original readers, but us as well? So that's where we're heading this morning. And with a shout out to the Beatles, we're going to go with Hey Jude for our title. All right, who and to whom? Now the writer in verse 1 identifies himself as Jude, but literally that's kind of shorthand because in the Greek it's literally Judah or, wait for it, Judas. Now, the problem in identifying who this Judah, Judas, Jude person is, that there's tons of people in the Bible named Jude. Tons of people living in Palestine 2,000 years ago named Jude or Judah. It's kind of like today's John. No offense to, to the Johns in the audience, but you're rather a common, ordinary bunch. But John, when you're trying to identify him, that can be a problem when there's Multiple Johns in the room, same thing with Judas. But he does say, verse, look at verse 1, that he's the brother of James. Now, we know from the book of Acts that James is no less than the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But not only that, Galatians 1.19, Paul the apostle more specifically identifies James, and he calls him, wait for it, the Lord's brother. The Lord's brother, Literally, the half-brother of Jesus sharing the same mother Mary, but obviously not the same father. Now, if you do a little detective work and you go back to the Gospels, do you, do you know that we actually know the names of some of, at least, Jesus' brothers and sisters? Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Jesus is in Nazareth, and the people are murmuring about what he's doing, and this is what they say. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, they're talking about Jesus, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. So who is Jude really? Jude is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. To which we have to ask, well, Pastor Paul, why doesn't he just say so? Right? Because that's what we would do, right? If we're going to pin an important letter, post something important on social media, I mean, come on, Jude, tell everybody who you are. Use your connection to Jesus, man. Don't you get it? God has made you famous. He has given you this platform for ministry. Leverage your name, Jude, for all the branding, I mean, ministry that we can muster. What an opportunity, Jude. Hashtag brother of Jesus. So you, you can see where, where our minds go with this. Jude says none of that. He simply identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, literally, do loss slave. I'm just the houseboy for Jesus. 
Now, now why, why does Jude take this, this tact? I'm not sure you're aware of it, but over the past five or six years, there have been a group of pastors and ministry leaders here in Tallahassee called the Dangerous Calling Collective, the DC Collective. And we gather a couple times a year, a few times a year to encourage each other. It's not an ecclesiastical organization. It really just exists to care for pastors' souls because there is so much attrition, so much dropout, so much scandal that can inflict leadership. And so it's just a time to come together, learn together, pray together, be together. But I remember it was a couple of years ago, we were over there in the youth room where the chili cook-off is going to be today. And I remember Bob Evans, who's one of the pastors at Wildwood, stood up and he had us all stand with him. And he proceeded to read from John one twenty. And remember in John 1.20, the Pharisees have come to ask John the Baptist if he in fact is the Christ. Remember this? We studied it way back a couple of years ago. And what does John the Baptist say resolutely? He said he confessed to them what? I am not the Christ. And so Bob had us read that passage like third graders over and over again. Just as a reminder, folks, leaders, pastors, it's not about you. Not about you. Not about your ministry. Not about your platform. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. And when we forget that about our churches, when we forget that about our marriages, when we forget that about our parenting or our jobs, whatever God has called us to, we quickly lose our way. Harry Truman said this very famously. He says, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. I don't know about you, but that, I don't like that quote. Okay, that is so hard. Particularly in our day and age where if something's worth doing, surely it's worth doing either for money or for fame. And Jew says, I'm not in it for either one. I don't need to drop names, Jude might tell us. This is not about me. This is about Jesus. This is about the church. This is about the truth. Because if I could just grab hold of some of our couples here and just re- who are having difficulties in marriage and remind them, it's not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your wishes. It's not not even about your desires. We're just house slaves like Jude who's writing to say, I've got something important to tell you. Now, now, who is he writing to? Look back at verse 1. He does mention that he's the brother of James. Interesting that he mentions James but not Jesus. You see, James, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Everybody knew James. And the reason I think Jude is mentioning James here is that he's not trying to name drop, but he is attempting to establish his authority. See, we don't know for sure, but it could very well have been by this time that James, who we know was martyred, church history tells us he was pushed off the, the pinnacle of the temple and stoned to death. Church history tells us that Jude, in fact, might have been an elder in the church in Jerusalem. And then as James was martyred, Jude might very well have taken his place. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that 
he most likely was living in Palestine. He was most likely writing to people who would have known James. He is clearly writing to Jewish Christians. And as we go through this book the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the amazing, the astounding number of times the Old Testament is quoted, the number of examples and stories. And, and, and famous preachers in this day and age have said things like, we need to be untethered to the Old Testament. It's a stumbling block to people. Guys, you cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. Jude quotes freely from it, talking about Moses and Korah and Balaam, and he's using all these Jewish idioms about whoa and all these sorts of things. So, so clearly, he has a Jewish audience in mind, those who are familiar with their Bibles, who are probably living in Palestine. And before we sort of get into the meat of why he's writing, I just want to take a second and point out how he refers to the people that he's writing to. Look at verses 1 and 3. He calls them beloved twice. He also calls them called and kept. You know, that kept word should be familiar. We just got through celebrating the kept celebration last week. Unbelievable time. What an awesome opportunity to send off Josh and Katie and the East core team. But we've talked about this idea of, of keep means to guard or to make secure. See, a lot of times we blow past these introductions in the text and kind of gloss over them. But four folks don't do that. These are precious words for us. You see, God loves the world, but do you know that he particularly loves his people? He particularly loves his people with an eternal, covenantal, everlasting love. He has, we didn't seek out God, he sought us. We were just doing our thing, and we didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll have a little bit of that Jesus stuff. I think I need some Jesus in my life. That's not what happened. God called you. And in calling you, he saves you. And most importantly, and just as importantly, he's keeping you. And see, Jude wants the readers to be reminded of this because they are going through a storm. And it's a storm that not just that time in church history inflicted the church. It's a storm for every church age. And as, as Jude is going to literally invite us into battle. He wants to remind us that God has us. So that's the who and the and to whom. Now, secondly, the why and the for the what. Why is Jude writing specifically? What does he want to see happen in the lives of his leaders? Look at verse 3. He says, beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Now, that word common salvation sort of just kind of means the, 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 the experience of walking with Jesus that we all share together. We call it fellowship or community. And, and, and Jude is basically communicating, hey, I wanted to sit down and pen a letter from my heart, just like, we, like some of us would have if we sat down over dinner and like shared Christian fellowship, or we gathered in the community group and we encouraged each other, we prayed for each other, we applied God's word together. There's an amazing richness that happens there. Jude says, that would have been my preference. He said, I was eager to do that, anxious to do that. 
But look back at verse 3. He said, but I found it necessary. Now that word necessary literally means to be in distress. He was compelled. There was an urgency. In other words, he was telling them, I would love to sit down and break bread with you and have a conversation over dinner and, and build each other up. But in actuality, you're out on the ledge of the bridge of the building. And you don't know it, but you're about to fall over. You're about to plunge to your death. And so I'm not sharing an intimate meal. I'm coming to the edge, literally, and I'm pleading with you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm beseeching you. I'm on my knees. You're in peril, and you don't even know it. This is crisis intervention. And for good reason, look at verse 4. It says, for certain people have crept into the church. Now, it's interesting how Jude refers to them. He says, for certain people, look down further in verse 4, ungodly people, he calls them. Now, that Greek construction is interesting. It literally means, ungodly literally means without God or without worship. Now, this should get our attention because what Jude seems to be saying is that there have, pe- there have been people who've crept into the church. These are self-professing Christians, but in actuality, they are without worship. They are without God. And that needs to get our attention quickly because we understand that you can go to church your whole life. You can be confirmed and baptized and take the Lord's Supper every week and know all the Bible facts, but in fact, in the parlance of Scripture, be someone who is without God, who is without heartfelt worship. These are people in the church Jude is identifying. And there's two particular things that he says sort of marks them out as ungodly. Look, at, look back at verse 4. Ungodly people who first pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, number one, and number two, deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, pervert meaning to twist or to distort. They say they're, they're, they're perverting, they're twisting, they're, they're distorting the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality literally means licentiousness or immorality. You know, there's, over the last few years, we've heard a number of things about all the sexual abuse scandals that have rocked various factions of the church, the Roman Catholic Church particularly. But there's an article that's come out in today's Houston Chronicle. It's an expose of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is has identified any host of churches, leaders, lay people, lay leaders, folks in the church who have been sort of accused of abuse, but in some way it has been covered up. Now what's interesting and tragic about this is that these are people with orthodox doctrine. These are people ordained. These are people commissioned. These are people entrusted with the care of God's people oftentimes, but underneath, their lives are totally corrupt. 
See, what Jude seems to be telling us is that we typically think about false teachers as those who espouse false doctrine, and that's true, and we will talk about that in a moment. But see, it, it rarely starts that way. And you've heard me kind of say this before, and I, it, it bears repeating because this is a pattern that happens in the church, where a leader or a person lives in this tension between what they say they believe and then what they are actually doing. And as they wrestle with that and try to keep that sin hidden and the tension becomes so great, what can oftentimes happen instead of confessing and coming clean and being broken and submitting oneself is that leaders can oftentimes take the opposite tact and just sort of move the goalposts a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like God didn't, I mean, we know God says this and that about marriage and divorce. And, you know, there, we know that mar- divorce may be allowed in instances of sexual immorality or abusive relationships where there is forced desertion. But, but surely there's a third reason or a fourth reason or a fifth reason Surely loving relationships cannot just be defined between a man and a woman. Do you see what happens here? And so as a person struggles in their conduct, they end up changing their theology to match their life. Jude wants to make something really clear to us. That's not an exegetical problem. That's not a hermeneutical problem. That's a heart problem. Look at how he describes this verse 4. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, James is saying woeful, willful disobedience, holding up the clenched fist to God. And it's never described that way, but that's functionally what it is. James says that's the same as denying the lordship of Jesus. That is dishonoring to Christ. That is trampling upon his name. It's a reminder for us, and we have to be reminded of this, in a spiritually but not religious culture, obedience for oaks to God's word is obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ is obedience to God's word. They are one and the same thing. You cannot walk with Jesus apart from the word of God. You know, there's lots of ungodly people in the world, but that's not who Jude is concerned with. Same thing in Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there was immorality in the church. He says, look, folks, don't worry about judging the world. God's got that. The world is going to be the world. Culture is going to be the culture. You turn your attention to the household of faith. That's where discipline begins. And that's what makes the people in this passage so dangerous. They are in the church. They are claiming to be Christians. But Jude says they have crept in, which literally means they have snuck in unawares. They look like they belong, but they really don't. They have another agenda. 
This is a true story, not from the Paul Gilbert book of Apocrypha, but, but I have a brother-in-law in Kentucky, of course. This, these things happen in Kentucky. His, his aunt had gone out, and uh, the police were on a, a manhunt for a guy who'd escaped from, from jail or custody or something. So she came home, sensed that something, something was kind of out of place in her home, and went back to the closet, opened her closet, and there she stood inches away from this fugitive who was on the loose, face-to-face. And you can imagine how terrifying that was. Not for her, but for the fugitive, okay? <laughs> because as we do in Tennessee, Kentucky, my, my, let's just say my, my, my in-law, she was prepared, okay? She was packing some heat, and she proceeded to hold him at gunpoint until the police came and got him. And trust me, according to her, he was glad he got arrested by the time she was done with him, right? It's easy when fugitives appear because we know they don't belong. But see, in the church, guys, it's so easy to talk the talk, to dress the dress, to have the forms, to have the appearance of outward behavior. And guess what? Us leaders, we're the, we're the best at this. See, people don't present themselves and come to the door and say, hey, I'm a thief, I'm a robber, I'm a fugitive, can I come in? They present themselves as part of the family. And verse 12, we'll look at next week, tells us that these, in fact, are hidden reefs who shipwreck lives. Verse 12, in fact, just, just read there just for one second. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Who are they? Shepherds. Shepherds feeding themselves. People who are supposed to be protecting the flock, leading the flock, teaching the flock, are in fact using it as a platform to enrich themselves for either money or for power or for affirmation or for fame. It's, it's one of the reasons, by God's grace, we we try, to, we try to lead with a plurality. or a, a, we're, we're not a one-person leadership at Four Oaks. Because in case you haven't noticed it, men historically who become isolated and have a lot of power do really, really dumb things. Have you notice this? And so we have a plurality of leaders. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean somebody can't fall. It just simply means that it leverages leadership to lessen the impact to the church. Because it, it bears remind, a reminder because we're always going to be prone and tend to, to kind of look out culturally what's going on. The degradation of our culture and the collapse of our laws and all these sorts of things and societal standards. And, and that's real. There are threats to the church from outside the church. Not martyrdom for us, but could be one day, probably will be laws, persecution, discrimination. But make no mistake, and it's the way it's been for 2,000 years or longer, we're going to see in Old Testament history next week, the most dangerous threats to the church always are from within the church. That's why Paul says in Acts 20, and you've got to give it to Paul. I mean, he's, he brings these Ephesian elders around them on the shores of Miletus, and they're crying, and he's crying, and he's going off to Jerusalem and he proceeds to give them these charges about shepherding the flock. And then he warns them. And he says, there's going to be false teachers that arise up in your ranks. And then, I don't know if I would have had the guts to say this. He says, 
even from your own midst. Even from your own midst. See, in the evangelical community, we are particularly vulnerable because we're not just a singular group of people meeting on a Sunday in a community. We are connected, aren't we, to teachers and podcasts and books and authors and advocates and lobbyists and bloggers, all with some sort of different agenda. Jude wants to make it abundantly clear what God's sentence is for such. Look back at verse 4. They were long ago designated for this condemnation. What does that mean? It just means that apostates have always been with the church. Always. They always will be. The church has always had to fight for its very survival. But the sentence that God pronounces over them is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and that is judgment, which might seem harsh. But men, if someone were messing with your wife, with your bride, what would you do? What should you do? It's no different when someone messes with Jesus' bride, the church. So what are we to do? Thank you, Pastor Paul. This has been an encouraging sermon. What are we to do? (laughs) Verse 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? To contend for the faith. There's that same word, appealing. I'm begging you. I'm imploring you. I'm pleading with you. Contend. Now, the word there literally comes from this idea of two gladiators in the arena, in the stadium, hand-to-hand combat. They are fighting. They are striving. striving. They are struggling. Only one person is coming out alive. And sometimes not even anyone coming out alive. You know, if, if you happen to flip through your cable channels and you run across the edited version of The Gladiator, which, which no man has ever come across Gladiator and not watched it, right? For a moment or two or ten. And there's a, there's a, there's a poignant scene in Gladiator where, where Russell Crowe, he, he's the Gladiator. He was a former Roman general. He's been confined to the Gladiator arena. He's fighting for his life. He's trying to figure out how to get free. And there's a poignant scene where, you know, he's just taking care of business in there. He defeats any and all comers, and everybody's cheering. And he turns to the crowd, and he says something very infamous. What was it? Are you not entertained? His point was, as I'm in here fighting for my very life, you're up there eating olives or eating fruits and hanging around on your Mediterranean plaza, and you're you're just, you're, you're kicking it up on easy street. Who in that analogy most resonates with you for who you are in your Christian life? See, if we want to know why church has become sort of casual and laid back, there's really no urgency about meeting and worshiping and fellowshipping and being, studying the Bible if, if, if that's your experience, it might be because you've forgotten who you are. I've forgotten who I am. 
we are in the arena. We are in hand-to-hand combat. And you may be here and say, well, Pastor Paul, I came here for the chili cook-off. Whoa, this sounds like hard work. I, I want a more genteel faith. I'm more, I want a more sublime faith, casual, laid back. This sounds like pressure. This sound, I, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. I'm starting to feel a little bit of guilty. Um, I'm not comfortable with a faith that must contend. If Jude were here, I think he would say, if you are not comfortable with contending, you're not going to be comfortable with Christianity, at least the biblical kind. See, the gospel and the church have always had to fight for their survival. So we can't fiddle around. We can't have conversations and dialogues with those who are actively working to redefine Christian truth. Now, let let me say this very clearly. If you are someone this morning who's here and you're struggling and you, you are asking questions and you're seeking and you're searching and you want to explore faith, we've got all day for conversations. I mean, we, will, we love those kind of conversations. We love to, to dig in and help people walk through those things. That's not who Jude is talking about. He's talking about those who have a subversive agenda. Jude was like, don't talk to them. Warn a divisive man once, Paul says, and then have nothing to do with him. See, when James says, contend for the faith, we'll talk about this next week. There is a personal side of this faith, but that's not what Jude refers to here. What he means in terms of contend for the faith is that his faith is a body of doctrine or truth that was delivered to the church by God himself. That's, that's what he means by once for all delivered to the saints. This idea, it's the idea of this precious cargo, this precious gift has been given to the church. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, it's been given to the church a single time. It's not progressive. It's not ongoing. It's not revised in light of what's happening culturally at any given point in time. It has been given to us once by Jesus. And as such, it is not to be tampered with. See, the Christian faith does not belong to you. And it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. And he gave it to his church in the form of his word. And he says, judgment, judgment for those who dare mess with it, for those who tamper with the word of God. I know that there can be legitimate disagreements about what certain portions of Scripture say about this subject or that subject. I'm not addressing that. Judas asking us, though, to say, is your fundamental posture as a believer to say, this is the word of God, and although I fail in obeying it, I fail in, in, in applying it in different ways, but my heart is submitted to it because it's his faith. It's his truth that he's given to us. George Barna came out with the study. It was released this week. 
And this illustration, by the way, is not going to go where you think it's going to go. And in it, it surveyed Christian millennials, those ages, I don't know, 25 to 36 or somewhere in there. And it says that half of millennials, while being sincere and devoted to their faith, believe that it is wrong to evangelize. It's wrong to proselytize. It's wrong to share your faith with the goal of converting someone to Christianity. Interestingly, it says they're much more apt and comfortable with advocating for a particular moral or political position than they are with the gospel. Now, how does that happen? It's your fault and mine. Let me just say it right off. See, a lot of us have been contending for a long time, but oftentimes contending for the wrong things. See, we, I grew up in a very political culture, very political home. We spent more time contending politically and counting political victories and elections and less about contending for the gospel and teaching truth. Of course, our kids who come after us and see that pattern are going to say, well, it must not be that important. These are the things I want to contend for. And just because it's not of the same political persuasion as you, maybe, you're critical of it. I'm critical of it. But it, it, it boils down fundamentally. Who or what are we contending for? Now, these last couple of minutes, I just want to point us forward on just a few things that will help us have stakes in the ground as we think about what it means to contend. I want to say just three brief things, and then we're going to return to these in the next, in the next two weeks. Number one, what does this mean for me? How do I contend? Number one, move yourself into the current of God's Word. Let me say something kind of preachy, something kind of provocative. If your only or primary exposure to the Word of God is on Sunday mornings and at that only once or twice every month, you're not going to be able to contend. You will be deceived. You will be led astray. You are living off somebody else's capital. You've borrowed spiritual heritage. See, Sunday morning is meant to gather us to be a compass to point us forward into ongoing engagement with the Word of God. Being in a men's study, being in a women's study, we have those. That's what we do in community groups when we gather together and apply God's Word. It's what the women did here on Thursday night at their Thursday night conversations where these women are getting together. They have a panel. They're, they're talking, engaging on pertinent biblical issues as applied to the lives of women. This is going to be every Thursday, every first Thursday of the month through the spring. Are you putting yourself into the current of God's Word? What are you listening to on the way to work? What are you listening to when you're working out? You know, we're exposed to a lot more, but man, we have an incredible repository of biblical wealth available to us in the palm of our hand. I mean, previous generations would have, would have killed for this, to be able to, to, to delve into the depths and riches of God's Word. We have to ask, though, is it producing godliness? 
Is it producing a people that contend for the faith? Because if you're going to contend, you've got to know the truth. So number one, move yourself into the current of God's Word. Number two, embrace biblical leadership. We talk a lot about church membership here at Four Oaks. Scott announced the next membership class is coming up on on March 10th. Why do we do that? Is it to bolster the roles? Is it to to make ourselves? No, 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 no. It's to invite people, it's to invite you into a relationship with leaders who have been charged with patrolling the perimeter, who have been charged with guarding the flock, who aren't just like willy-nilly, whatever, you know, you can study whatever, look at whatever, read whatever. No, 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 no. That, that, that we can monitor, that we can know, that we can that we can forecast threats to the church of God. You have men who are, who are equipped, trained, have experience, who, who know what's going on in the broader world and can see the threats coming. A lot of times the church is like the hobbits in the Shire, right? They're having a great time, probably eating and drinking a lot of beer, no doubt about it. But Strider, Aragorn, patrolling the northern boundary, keeping the people safe from something they don't even know is there. We invite you into that relationship. When you're a member here, that means we've been in charge with caring for your soul. And number three, consider your posture towards contending. I know that when we use words like contending, where we get the word contentious, um, that, is a, that is a curse word in postmodernism, right? What I want you to see, what Jude wants you to see, is that contending is actually love. Parents, the most loving thing you can do for your kids is not to contend for their career, not to contend for their vocation, not to contend, to contend for their well-being, although I hope you're contending for all those things but it's to contend for their soul. It's to contend for the truth. Parents, are you, are you out on the perimeter? Are you patrolling the perimeter? Or would you be absolutely shocked what you would find if you had 10 minutes with your kid's iPhone? And all the kids are not liking me right now, okay? Would you be? Would I be? Guys, we're all contending for something. But we have to remember, because the church is imperfect, the church is scarred, and you may say, Pastor Paul, I haven't been contending. I, have, I haven't been patrolling the perimeter or the border. I've, I've kind of been the person in the crowd, cheering, wanting to be entertained. I haven't gotten the sense of urgency I know you're calling me to, that God is calling us to. Well, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. He came and perfectly contended for you and me. Well, he was wide open to the sinners who had questions, and but boy, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, oh, there was, there, there was contending going on. He contended for you. He, continued, he contended with the authorities when he went to the cross. Because of his contending, perfect contending for us, We have perfect forgiveness through him. 
But the proper posture of God's people as we come face to face with this is to say, God, we want to repent. We want to be people of the Word. We want to be people who are contending out of love. Not contentious, but contending out of love. So, Lord, give us the courage and grace to do so. Let's pray.